0: Care about the climate? Know a writer who does? Submissions just opened for Grist magazine's free annual climate fiction contest Imagine 2200 Climate Fiction for Future Ancestors. Grist is looking for short stories that envision the next 180 years of climate progress, imagining worlds of abundance, adaptation, reform, and hope. The Imagine contest emphasizes hope, justice, and solutions. It's an invitation to imagine a future in which solutions to the climate crisis flourish and help bring about radical improvements. And it is a call to craft stories that challenge the status quo of extraction, oppression, and violence. Winners will be published on Grist's site in an immersive climate fiction collection, and receive a cash prize. Plus, there's no submission fee. The deadline to submit your story is June 13th. For all the details, go to grist.org imagine. Again, check it out at grist.org imagine. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sharif Shanahan's Trace Evidence a collection of poems that Ocean Vuong calls a truly magical achievement. In a powerful and urgent follow-up to his award-winning debut, Shanahan's Trace Evidence explores the complexities of mixed-race identity, the tension of queer longing, time and mortality, and the brutal legacy of anti-blackness in the United States and abroad, says Ada Limon. Revelatory and pulsating with truth, Trace Evidence is a dangerously wise book of poems. Each poem is full of muscular music and meticulously carved out of longing as they ask not just why we live, but how we live and for whom. Wholly human and deeply rooted in attention, this book is for anyone who has ever questioned where they belonged. Trace Evidence is out on March 21st from Tin House and available for pre-order now. There have been many conversations lately on the show that have been many years in the making, and this is another one of them. A longtime fan of Sabrina's work, I've been dreaming with her, dreaming together with her toward this day since before the pandemic. And today's conversation about her first book of essays Happily, is strangely, and I think appropriately, one that refuses to be a nonfiction conversation, one that insists on being feral, like the fairy tales these essays are about. As some readers have noted, these essays become fairy tales themselves. And with Sabrina's longstanding background as a poet, This conversation travels omnivorously between poetry and memoir and essay and fiction and fantasy and the fantastical. Somehow it evokes a dream world as a way not to look away from, but to confront the very real fears, threats, and uncertainties in our lives as individuals and communities and as a species. Perhaps in the spirit of the feral, fantastical nature of her book, in the first third of the conversation, we experience a little technical difficulty. In total, it really only amounts to perhaps 10 minutes at most. And really, it is only a three-minute answer of Sabrina's given to the first question posed by someone from outside our conversation, where it is consistently noticeable her speech speeding up and slowing down, like Alice getting too large and too small, words being clipped or dropped as if eaten still alive by a witch in the forest. But even that answer remains meaningful, if strangely so. So once you hear our first guest questioner and Sabrina's three-minute answer to it, after that, we're in the clear. Also, in the first third of the conversation, we talk quite a bit about the writer and visual artist Bruno Schultz, both about his work and the circumstances of his life and untimely death. He's a big influence and inspiration for Sabrina. So it delighted me that for the bonus audio, she chose to read one of his stories entire the story Birds. And when you listen to her read this story and hear, Bruno's attention to the sonic qualities of his prose. You feel in your body the connection between him and Sabrina. The bonus audio archive is absurdly vast and deep now, step by step as guests contribute more and more to it. But thinking about this wondrous story that Sabrina reads, I think also of Daniel Jose Older reading from at the time, a forthcoming book, a way of reading that will immediately transport you before the fire, wide-eyed at the foot of an elder, reading you a story, and Marlon James's craft talk on the art of seduction as a writer, and Richard Power's incredibly moving reading of a W.S. Merwin poem about trees. The bonus audio is only one, potential benefit of joining the between the covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource rich email with each episode overflowing with discoveries I made while preparing for the conversation and also suggestions of places to explore after you listen. Every listener supporter can help shape who we invite next on the show and then there are simply too many other possible things to name that you could also choose from. From becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public, to writing consultations from past guests, to rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin and others. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash covers. And now for today's conversation with Sabrina Ora Mark. These stories are about the id unleashed.
1: They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
2: I think stories kind of like,
0: have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without
2: stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence
0: of me. It's just story.
2: Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them.
1: Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences.
2: I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's guest is poet short story writer and now essayist, Sabrina Ora Mark. Mark has a BA from Barnard College, an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and a PhD in English from the University of Georgia. She has taught at the University of Georgia, Agnes Scott College, Rutgers University, and the University of Iowa, among many other places. And her work has garnered everything from a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship to a Creative Capital Award. Her 2004 debut poetry collection, The Babies, was winner of the Saturnalia Book Prize, as judged by poet Jane Miller, with poems described by Claudia Rankin as gorgeous, intelligent, and disturbing. She followed this up with a second poetry collection, Simsum, which follows two characters from her debut, Walter B. and Beatrice, which Mark Doty described as like a collection of episodes from a lost, slightly sinister children's book on the nature of love and time. Sabrina's third book was her first book of stories, Wild Milk, out with Dorothy Project and a winner of the Georgia Author of the Year Award for short stories. Edward Carey proclaims Wild Milk as a little miracle. Her imagination is one of the most jaw-dropping I've ever met. She looks at the world with such a new profound, funny, alarming, exhilarating, and heartbreaking way. Her writing resets the brain. There is nothing quite like it. So genuine is it in its mysteriousness that the world feels freshly cracked open. These are tales to wake you up at last. Through the worst of the pandemic, Sabrina also wrote a monthly column for the Paris Review that was a lifesaver for many including me, writer Elisa Herod tweeted at the time. Perhaps only a writer who had already thought deeply about the babies that do not exist because of the Holocaust and had given absurdist, surreal voice to those babies could have been prepared to turn out a monthly column during an uncontrolled pandemic. And definitely only Aura Mark could write about the loss of an antique plague doctor baby and turn it into a shape that holds a feeling I didn't know how to name, possibly didn't even know I was feeling at all. So long ago when I reached out to Sabrina to discover that these essays were to become a book called Happily, that yet again she was venturing forth into a new genre, both to undo it and remake it anew, I knew I wanted us to gather to talk about it. Here's what early readers are already saying about it. Kiesi Lehman says of Happily, You will remember the day, hour and minute you finish happily, and it might remember you. Magic does live here. Sabrina Mark has actually remade our childhoods by taking so seriously the world we've made as adults easily one of the most inventive, phenomenally executed books I've read in decades. Rebecca Solnit adds, These are fairy tales that are essays on fairy tales, but also incantations, confessions, news analysis, personal history, and reminders that fairy tales are dainty things capable of doing a lot of heavy lifting of the contents of our imaginations and the aches of our hearts. Finally, Sarah Manguso says, With milk teeth, breadcrumbs, pebbles, and tears, Sabrina Oramark illumines the outmost expanses of motherhood's chaos, cruelty, and love. She confidently wields the weird logic of the fairy tale. Bewitched, I didn't even try to distinguish the real from the unreal. I just wanted to follow this thrillingly distinctive book, wherever it went. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sabrina Ora Mark.
3: Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: I know we've been sort of imagining together this conversation for such a long time.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. So thank you.
0: I don't know if this is an easy softball question or whether this is the hardest of questions. But it's a question I think I'll be asking you in various ways as we talk today. Over and over again, these essays, one to the next, are confronting joys and terrors of being alive by juxtaposing those things with fairy tales, by looking at one's life through and alongside fairy tales. And not only is there a sense that this is a life-saving act for you, a way to continue, to connect, to endure, to celebrate. But also, I think, given the immense response to these essays, while we were all hunkered down in fear and caution and a deep sense of unknowing during the first year of the pandemic, it's clear others found this project a raft of sorts, too. So I want to ask the question, why fairy tales? Why juxtapose life stories with them versus some other genre, but also thinking about your own life story where fairy tales were not part of your childhood, I doubly want to ask this question. So perhaps we can start with fairy tales and how they have and haven't intersected with your life story and and why they've become such a principal way to make sense of life as it comes hurtling toward us now.
3: I... Did not grow up reading fairy tales but i did grow up studying the torah which is its own kind of collection of fairy tales in many ways and i think that what happened with me with the fairy tale was that happily really began out of seeing the bruno schultz frescoes at yad vashem But not first seeing them at Yad Vashem, first seeing them in a documentary where you can actually see the filmmakers discovering the fairy tales and the fairy tales kind of emerging from the whitewash. And I remember seeing that moment of the fairy tales emerging from the whitewash and thinking, that's what I want to do in my writing. Like, I want that kind of collision of the the now and the ancient to happen at once, like in this single breath. And I think using the fairy tale as a way to write about really my days, you know, like the the day as the day is, as a mother, as a writer, as a wife, as a thinker um, living far away from where I came from, what the fairy tale does is it always offers a kind of hand reaching out saying like, okay, we have been here before, we have all been here before, we have all felt these things, and the things you are feeling, and this is not to diminish it, but like the things that you are feeling have been felt maybe much worse and much bigger by many as an imagined story and as um a story that kind of lives inside of all of us. And so I think as we all had this this shared global moment that was this plague that the fairy tale in many ways made A lot of sense as as a story that we all can experience together you know that we can all kind of reach for together Um, and that kind of reaches for each of us too whether we want it to reach for us or not Um, I've always felt like fairy tales are not meant for children at all. They're really meant for like, if they're meant for children, they're meant for very like ancient children or <sighs> trees or angels. You know, they 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 get to the deepest part
0: of us. Well, Kate Bernheimer, one of the great champions of the fairy tale and the founder and editor of the F- Fairy Tale Review, she has this great essay called Fairy Tale is Form, Form is Fairy Tale, which argues that fairy tales are analyzed over and over again for their meaning, but almost never for their form and technique. And yet she believes there's a lot we can learn as writers from looking at the latter. The four elements that for her define fairy tales are flatness, abstraction, intuitive logic, and normalized magic. And I want to bring up these elements for a couple reasons. One, because Kate and Lincoln Michelle, whose recent substack titled Fairy Tale as MFA Anecdote," which meditates on Kate's essay, they both note how fairy tales violate all the so-called rules of good writing, whether dimensionality of character and characterization in general, uh, show-don't-tell, specificity of language, among many things. Yet fairy tales nevertheless endure. And they both think that looking at the fairy tale structure and techniques can be illuminating for any writer of prose. In fact, Michelle often starts his MFA writing classes with fairy tales so he can quickly dispel his students' preconceived notions of what good writing is supposed to be. But what I'm curious about is this strange pairing of memoir and fairy tale that you've done. Because the real people in these essays, your husband, your children, and stepchildren, your mother, they aren't flat. They aren't abstract. We encounter them differently than we encounter the fairy tale figures in the same essays. And yet somehow mysteriously these two forms have found harmonious coexistence in your essays. And I wondered about that, if that presented challenges or tensions to resolve in the writing, or does bringing the subjectivity and dimensionality and interiority of memoir alongside the exteriority and flatness of fairy tale, does that happen more naturally for you, like a normalized magic?
3: I love that question so much. And I think that the reason why, for me, the fairy tale really worked was because it became a structure, and maybe this goes back a little bit to what I was just saying, it became a structure where here was the scariest woods, or here was the most evil stepmother or here was the greatest fears of abandonment and like children wandering around in the in the woods and what it did was it made me brave to kind of speak up and tell my own story inside of that place because no matter what the evil stepmother would always be much more evil than I could ever be so I think partially the the hotness of the fairy tale you know like the sense of it being us in our most like monstrous most realized like most scared state which is a kind of flatness in a way like it 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 strange strangely is a kind of flatness I've felt like it can hold, so many stories i think angela carter says and i I don't want to get this wrong but it's um new wine and old bottles you know that the bottle that is the fairy tale is just like made out of what feels like the most indestructible glass you can kind of almost drink your own story from it and understand how it tastes after all it really gave me a kind of freedom, like in the way that with my first book, The Babies, the prose poem, you know, became a kind of container inside of which like I could go wild. The fairy tale gave me like a a very simple structure in many ways and inside of which to find like the feral parts of memoir, you know, like the parts that I just really didn't understand i learned so much about the way i think through the fairy tale which like i think for a long time i almost felt like was on the edge of being boring Mm -hmm. um you know like here are these strange stories and there's moments of miracle and beauty but i think i misunderstood them as being stale and kind of
0: predictable well one thing that both kate and lincoln point out about fairy tales that seems really interesting to me and also somewhat mysterious about them is a, is a particular effect that they create here is kate saying Fairy tales are the skeletons of story, perhaps. Reading them often provides an uneasy sensation, a gnawing familiarity, that comforting yet supernatural awareness of living inside a story. Lincoln calls this awareness open artifice. He says, fairy tales eschew the standard methods of hiding fictional artifice and instead present themselves as pure story. And paradoxically, it feels like these skeletal stories create this effect that Kate calls comforting and supernatural of being aware of living inside a story. Mm. And that is what I think your essays do. And we have a question for you related to you and the essay form. But first, I was hoping you'd read the first page of the prologue as sort of a demonstration of this effect.
3: Oh, definitely. Prologue. As a child growing up in Brooklyn, I had a book of fairy tales I never opened, because on the cover, it had a salivating crocodile in a brown corduroy vest who I imagined would eat me if given the chance. There was no such book, says my mother. You're imagining things. The cover was flecked with gold, and its spine smelled faintly like fish. I search for it online. I type in fairy tales, crocodile, brown vest, salivating. I type in 1985. I type in, I was afraid. It looks like, says the computer, there aren't many great matches for your search. Try using words that might appear on the page you are looking for. What I couldn't open as a child, I want to open now. I am ready to read all the fairy tales in a book my mother insists never existed. Fairy tales about witches with long knotted tongues or children baked into bread or daughters who run so far away from home, they grow a second heart. But I can't find the book. Are you certain? Asks my husband. It was a crocodile and not an alligator. Are you certain the corduroy vest was brown? But my husband isn't really looking for the book. It's for me to look for and for me to never find. There is a path of pebbles inside that book I will never follow. There is an unlived life that begins 11 pebbles in. I am so far away from where I've never gone and what I'll never know and who I'll never be. It is impossible to tell if on that path I am radiant or falling to pieces. What are you thinking? Asks my husband. Nothing, I say. I pick a crumb from his beard, put it in my mouth, and swallow.
0: I've been listening to Sabrina Ora Mark read from Happily. So we, we not only have Kate Bernheimer's writings about fairy tales as one lends into your book, or trail of breadcrumbs between not only you and your husband's beard, but between you and her, we have a question from Kate. So here is Kate asking you a question.
4: Hi, Sabrina. This is Kate. We've never met, but once upon a time, I invited you to write a new fairy tale for a collection where authors revisited old fairy tales and new works of fiction because the style of your fiction struck me as super ripe for the assignment. And it was. Your angular, surreal story, My Brother Gary Made a Movie and This is What Happened, a variation on jean Basile's The Young Slave, is a surprising rebus of a tale within a tale about storytelling itself. And here we are on David's enchanting podcast on the occasion of Happily around 15 years later. Congratulations. It's been such a pleasure to witness your engagement with fairy tales deepen and take center stage in your work. How they've offered you such a good way to think about your experience as a mother, daughter, citizen, Jewish woman, and character. An aspect of your work that I think is really special and which has truly evolved here is its fairy tale style. Yours is an associative, declarative style, and your nonfiction is a hospitable place, welcoming any idea, image, or curious question that might wish to arise through a tale. These essays are not only about fairy tales, but are fairy tales, too, because of how they are told. So I sense that fairy tales not only have provided you with material, they also have unlocked your poetics. And I think listeners might love to hear you speak about your nonfiction writing style and how it follows from fairy tales for you.
3: I love that question. Oh wow. thank you. Thank you, Kate. And hopefully one day we'll we'll meet in the in this in the woods um, <laughs> um so I think my my poems had always these little stories hidden inside of them. And then my um, stories had poems hidden inside of them. And now my essays have these fairy tales. Um, My essays on fairy tales will sort of give, give way to the fairy tale kind of like surrender to the form. What I imagine as both like a kind of surrender and a kind of defiance at once inside of form where I'm both surrender to the to the form of the fairy tale, but also being defiant inside of like what one imagines one has has gotten oneself into when one enters into a, an essay. Um, I think that kind of collision of surrender and um, defiant is where I can start getting close to understanding something I hadn't yet understood. Um, maybe in a way, that's why I live so far away from where I came from, that in a way, it's like, if if you raise me in an essay, I'll end up in a fairy tale. Huh. Um, it's like, I've learned about what I'm capable of as a writer by by following the fairy tale almost like past what I understood it could offer me. And at times, you know, it that Scared me a lot too.
0: I want to return to what you said about Bruno Schultz and maybe provide a little bit of, of background to who Bruno Schultz was and why that seeing those fairy tales come through would have that impact for you. So, as a preface to my question for you, for people who don't know who Bruno Schultz is, he was a Jewish, Polish writer and artist, and he wrote fantastical tales and many writers, as varied as Cynthia Ozick and China Mieville and Roberto Bolaño, reference Schultz's work in some way or another, he was dispossessed and rounded into the ghetto, where the ultimate fate for most was transport to one of the death camps. But one of the Nazi officers admired Schultz's artwork, and extended him protection in exchange for painting a mural in his child's bedroom. So Schultz was this Nazi's quote-unquote personal Jew or necessary Jew, something that apparently many Nazis had. And it turns out that this Nazi, Felix Landau, had previously killed another Nazi's personal Jew. So one day, Schultz is returning to the ghetto and is shot by this other Nazi in revenge. One personal Jew or necessary Jew killed for another. The mural that Schultz was working on was painted over and forgotten for a half century. And this documentary you're referencing shows the discovered and recovered murals and you see in the documentary the fairy tales coming through the whitewash, Snow White, Cinderella, the seven dwarves. And as you said, you wanted to try to capture this feeling of history coming through into the present. But also the history itself feels mythic to me. Um, but it makes me think of your epigraph to Happily by Carlo Levy, The Future Has an Ancient Heart. So I was hoping maybe just to pause again with this Schultz image and, and this Carlo Levy quote, why this might be the opening quote to happily. And does, it, does this quote feel connected to the unfinished mural found again? And how does time relate to once upon a time?
3: That's a beautiful question. There's this moment And I'll just go back to this documentary for a second because uh, called Finding Pictures, where you see in real time the fairy tales being discovered in this apartment that had been Poland and is now considered the Ukraine. And this woman comes to the door, this like old woman, and she has these thick glasses and she's looks up at the filmmaker and she's clearly mostly blind and her husband, I think is dying in the other room and she lives in this kind of, she seems to be living in this kind of misery and poverty. And, you know, when they open the door, it it, it looks in a lot of ways like the continuation of some kind of fairy tale as if the story keeps being told. And so you can kind of rub a story out or rub a particular kind of imagination out. You know, when we think about all the stories that Bruno Schultz didn't get to write, or maybe, you know, somehow he's still writing them. You know, when that woman comes to the door and she rubs her eyes and looks up, I'm like, oh yes, you know, like here's Bruno Schultz still still writing these, these stories. So I think that on one hand, when we think of lives being cut short or worlds being cut short, I think that there's always this other part of the story that gets picked up and continues on. And of course, you know, that goes back into the idea of like, the fairy tale that is retold and reimagined among many different cultures. So so when I think of the, the, the future having an ancient heart, the ancient probably has a future heart as well. And I like to think of story in that way, I think because I need to be that hopeful too. It's like when my students asked me often like you know during especially during like the worst of the pandemic the worst of the the most lockdown of lockdown like why am i even what am i even doing here like why am i even writing you know what's the point of of telling these stories really and i keep saying and i truly believe this like we just you you add your little pebble to the pile you add your your you know you add your pebble to the to the heap and you don't know you don't know you know how that that pebble is going to change the heap in one way or another you know lean it in one direction or cave it in or or whatever happens to to a heap of pebbles but i think that i like to think of story as a kind of collection of voices that are moving backwards and forwards and shattering and, you know, falling into holes and being dug up and forgotten and then remembered. And that's, that's really important to me.
0: The reason I'm bringing it up now is because I'm also thinking about this intersection between these unspeakable horrors and these tales from another dimension on the walls tales which themselves have this horrible story behind them. And I feel like this is a great description of what you're actually doing in Happily. For instance, in the opening essay, Ghost People, where one of your son Noah's teachers pulls you aside to say they're concerned about how he's building these ghost people out of wood chips in the playground, and and the teacher worries that they are distracting him. And you connect this to the story of Pinocchio and then also later in the same essay to the Jewish legend of the Gollum created to protect the Jewish ghetto in Prague. And when the Tree of Life synagogue shooting happens and one of your sons asks you what happened at the Tree of Life, you pretend he is referring to an actual tree and, and you say nothing happened, a branch fell which connects us back to the wood chip figures at the beginning. But what's interesting is the parents organize a group to talk about how to talk to their kids about the shooting and about anti-Semitism more generally. And you stand out as someone who isn't telling them about it, isn't telling your own children about it. You aren't telling them about the shooting and you haven't yet read them, Pinocchio, either. And some parents are worried you are keeping them in a bubble. And a debate ensues on whether you're keeping them in a bubble or a cocoon. And then you write, My child, I want to say at the meeting, at the synagogue, carries ghost people around, so it will be fine. I want to say, I haven't even read my son's Pinocchio yet. I want to say, how many minutes of all our children's childhoods are left. Instead, I say, my children ask me if their black father was ever a slave. They ask me if they will ever be turned into slaves. They ask me if I would ever be turned into a slave for being their mother. As black Jewish boys, my children will never be in a bubble. But if there were a bubble big enough, I'd move there in a second. Um, among the many ways you've characterized fairy tales is as cautionary tales, and yet it is fascinating that the book you've written on fairy tales and on motherhood opens with their lives already being, by default, cautionary, Mm. so much so that maybe you won't read them these tales. Maybe the way to protect them, cocoon bubble debate, be damned, is some other way. The, the way things are left in this essay reminds me of, of something you said in conversation with Vicky now. My students tease me because I always answer their questions with more questions. I tell my students, the worst thing a story can do is answer a question, unless it's a question your great-grandmother asked her mother long before you were born on the coldest day of the year, in a language you barely know. So I guess I wanted to hear you talk about beginning happily with this story, one that seems uneasy about stories, or at least cautionary ones, and one that's also uneasy about the limits of what a mother can do and what one should or shouldn't do. And as you intimate in this conversation with Vicky now, this is an essay with no answers.
3: When I started writing these essays and Nadia Spiegelman, who had been at the Paris Review, um, the great, brilliant Nadia Spiegelman, had asked me if I would write a column and, and to write these monthly essays. Well, first she thought maybe we would do them weekly and I thought I can't do anything weekly. And then I thought, you know, I can't write monthly, that's impossible. So I said, yes. And the original impulse really behind them was, my kids would say these things to me. And I knew if I didn't write them down, I would forget them. The other impulse was that I was scared. Um, the other impulse behind the essays was I found myself raising my kids in a place far away from where I came from and suddenly there's one school shooting after the next and my kids are Black and Jewish and I thought, how how are we going to all be okay? that was the impulse behind the essays. It was to remember and to protect. Um, And that was really all there was, which I guess probably is also everything. It's fascinating what you say about the cautionary tale, right? Because yes, like the idea inside of a fairy tale is that like the danger comes later. So what happens when you begin in the dangerous place. Can a book protect my kids? You know, can I kind of turn the essay inside out and wrap it around my kids like some kind of wool, overcoat, bubble, cocoon type garment? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think part of me still thinks yes, even though that probably seems slightly naive, if not idiotic but i i love this idea of the fairy tale as a cautionary tale but happily being a kind of tale that arrives with like all of the the list of dangers you know um and somehow through expression can act as a kind of armor, you know, that like, if we, if we better understand the worlds we live in and the things that came before us and the things that came before that, and then before that, will we have better tools to navigate? I think so. Or at least we'll have like a little bit more light when it gets really, really dark.
0: Yeah. Well, I would love to hear, I'd love to hear the opening to sorry, Peter Pan, we're over you. Sure.
3: Sorry, Peter Pan, we're over you. On the day before Halloween, my son's teacher tells me with the seriousness of a funeral director that Noah has decided he does not want to be Peter Pan after all this year. Noah stands close beside her, and he is dead serious too, as if after she breaks the news, he will be the one to show me the pine box where Peter Pan now sleeps. The furrow in Noah's brow deepens, and I imagine planting in it ranunculus, heliotrope, chrysanthemum, flowers we can pick to take with us when we pay our respects to the boy he has chosen not to be. His teacher speaks in a hush. He's decided instead shit, I think. Unlike Wendy Darling, who can sew shadows onto the foot of a boy who will never grow up, I can't sew. But weeks before, I had ordered the whole costume from Etsy. The green felt hat, the quiver and arrows, the tunic, the brown sash, the green tights, and now, at the last minute, a costume change. Instead, she says, oh god, what, I think. Instead, she says, her voice growing dim, he would like to be Martin Luther King Jr. I can't say no. I mean, I could say no, but then I would be the mother who told her son who wanted to be Martin Luther King Jr. that he must be Peter Pan instead. What am I supposed to say? You can't be Martin Luther King Jr. I already bought the green tights. Or... I'd prefer you imagine yourself as a very, very old boy, rather than as the most visible leader of the civil rights movement. I was cornered. It is already three o'clock. I need a black suit. I can draw the mustache on with eyeliner. I need black shoes, a white button down top. I drop Noah home and run off to Target. I pass the girls department and a t-shirt flashes at me. The future is female. Sorry, Nibs, Tootles, Slightly, Curly, Twin One, and Twin Two. Sorry, John and Michael. Sorry, my sons. The future is female. Sorry, Peter Pan. We're over you. I think a lot about boys, about raising mine to be sensitive and effective and tender-hearted and lovely and kind and funny and brave. I want them to be boys who keep their shadows on and who belong to a future. Boys who understand the difference between a thimble and a kiss. Worry picks at me like Hook's metal claw. I want their boyness to bloom. I want to keep them safe. Some idiot kid, says my mother, probably told Noah he can't be Peter Pan because Noah is black and Peter Pan is white. No, no, I say trust me says my mother i know how this stupid world today works my mother is no mrs darling she is no victorian she knows children can be as innocent as they can be heartless i sense she didn't approve of the story from beginning to end i wasn't sure if i approved either There is, frankly, something chilling about sending a child out into the world dressed like a great man in a stiff black suit who was shot in the neck at the age of 39. On the other hand, it's Halloween, and this whole southern town I live in is riddled with ghosts. So what's one more? Plus, It's no more chilling than sending your son out into the world dressed like a boy who at the end of the story can't remember the fairy who drank the poison meant for him. Or like the boy who tries to stick his shadow back on with soap, then takes credit for successfully sewing his shadow to his foot when everyone knows it was Wendy who did it with her housewife cleverness. God, I hate Halloween. As I walk Noah to his classroom, the other mothers smile at him sweetly, maybe a little too sweetly. My husband suggests he carry a Bible. We decide instead he carry a rolled-up piece of green construction paper that says on the outside, I have a dream. I'll just be an owl, says Eli. Thank you, I say.
0: We've been listening to Sabrina or Mark read from Happily. So we have a question for you from past Between the Covers guests, the poet Alicia Joe Rabins. And I was very curious what she was going to ask because there are many areas of overlap between her interests and yours. She's a Jewish educator and Torah teacher. She's a mother and an author of the book Even God Had Bad Parenting Days, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for New Parents. And even though she isn't a rabbi, She's kind of my de facto one, as any semblance of marking the passing of Jewish time in community for me always seems to happen in these miraculous gatherings in her backyard where kids are running everywhere and all these adults from different spheres in her life, whether from the music world or the writing world or from the Jewish world, they're all there, and, and yet even though everything feels sort of loose casual and open and spilling over, she still somehow performs and attends to the rituals and -hmm. the meaning of them. And she's a storyteller, both her indie folk songs about women in the Torah, girls in trouble and her first film, A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff. So here's a question from Alicia for you.
2: I love this book so much, Sabrina. Thank you for it. I'm so moved by the way you write about the weird hybrid experience, which I've never really seen described quite the way you do in this book, of how life is part lived in the world of objects and bodies and part in stories. And I love how your book enacts this feeling by moving between rocks and hair and and physical objects and between the realm of myth and how it kind of reflects that we constantly negotiate these realms or layers of experience, especially when we're interacting with other generations, whether they're our ancestors or our children. So thank you for this book. And as for my question, I'm curious specifically about how you as a writer or a person um, interpret the relationship between fairy tales and Jewish myths or stories. I feel like they're both Our inheritances as Jewish people raised in American culture. Um, And they have these distinctly different textures and you move so beautifully between the two of them throughout this book. And I just love to hear you talk a bit about how you relate to fairy tales versus Jewish legends and what you think about the relationship between them. Thank
3: you so much for that question. I, I actually um, bribed Alicia to to ask me that, that exact question. <laughs> sure, you did. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was a yeshiva kid. I grew up studying the Torah every day, and there wasn't very much difference between the day and the miracle um, in the way I think for most kids, there's the borders between like what is possible and what is impossible are blurred. I think for me, they were just endlessly blurred. So even, you know, when you would write anything down on on a piece of paper, you always, on the upper right-hand corner, like had to also write the abbreviation of God's name. So from the very beginning, there was this, I guess, overlap or this kind of fluidity between story and the day and miracles and um, the possible and the impossible. And I love how you described Alicia's backyard as, you know, being kind of filled with music and, and worlds that seems to be both spilling over and also like held by a kind of ritual looking for that or or searching for that is also like how we find form inside of the story itself like when I when I sit down to write I have one notebook and everything goes in it you know there's the grocery list and like how much the paint will cost and and then what some costume i need to get together for one of my kids and um and then you know lines from clarice le and a line from the baccalard's poetics of space and then also a piece of a fairy tale and then something from my son studying bar mitzvah and and then and then there's the question of like how do you contain that all in in one in one yard or one space or one house or one essay or one poem or one story the challenge for me is is finding a place where everything belongs and kind of sheds light on each other and i think in terms of the way studying the old testament and studying fairy tales now to me they're very much the same they both act as as these sorts of beautiful, strange guides that are both right and wrong and violent and healing and liars and truth tellers like all at once.
0: Well, it makes me think of and tell me if this is a stretch. it probably isn't the same language you might use for the Torah, but it makes me think of one of the four elements for Kate Bernheimer for fairy tales is normalized magic. And she describes it as the natural world in a fairy tale is a magical world. The day-to-day is collapsed with the wondrous. In a traditional fairy tale, there is no need for a portal. Enchantment is not astounding. Magic is normal. That just reminded me of the way you were describing your relation to Jewish stories.
3: Yeah, and I'll tell you, something i probably shouldn't admit but um when i was in graduate school i was taking a biblical translation class and you know there was a lot of discussion about source texts you know like and how you can kind of tell inside of the language like who wrote what and i guess i was in my late 20s and I said, so the whole part about the Bible being written by God, like that is that that's off the table, right? And everyone got very quiet, like very, very quiet. And it was clear that it, it was off the table. And I realized for how long, like into really like, my early adulthood that I actually did not question that. It was not a question for me. It wasn't a question for me. Like It was so important for me to believe that a book was written by this kind of divine light. Mm. Um, And really, I think I now understand so many books written by a kind of divine light. You know, even if we get to meet them in, in body form, if we're lucky, I think my relationship to language and storytelling was as informed as it was misinformed from very, very early on. And I kind of carried that forward for a long, long time.
0: Well, both to pick up on this notion of a book being written by divine light and also to expand upon Alicia's question, sort of as a first step to a question I want to ask, I was hoping maybe you could explain for listeners who aren't well-versed in Jewish mysticism the notion of simsum, what it is, why, why it's meaningful to you, and how it's related to Tikkun Olam, the, the task of repairing the world.
3: Simsum is considered in Jewish mysticism as a kind of flawed phase in Genesis, where right before the world is created, the creator of that world, of this world, stuffs their light into these vessels and then departs. And then here we are standing around inside of this creation where the creator has exiled themselves from it. And the light is so intense that these vessels can't contain the light. And so the vessels shatter and light is scattered everywhere. So here we are in this kind of predicament where the one who created the world that we live inside is now in a kind of exile or we're in a kind of exile from that creator, but also we're standing among like all of this scattered light. And then tikkun olam or repairing the world is in many ways the act of going around and Gathering that light up and trying to piece things back together somehow. And, you know, according to the Kabbalists, like this accounts for bewilderment in many ways of living in a world where there's always the sense that the answer is out of reach because the answer is always out of reach. Um, but it also is within reach as a kind of shattered form.
0: The reason why I wanted you to talk about SimSum is because in a very circuitous way, I want to connect Alicia's question about Jewish stories and fairy tales to something she said before the question about the physicality and preponderance of objects in your stories. It's something that prefaces her question, Mm. but I kind of wonder if there's a subterranean connection. If the goal for us is to see the divine spark hidden in anything and everything, every quote-unquote dead thing, and by doing so, by identifying the divine broken shard of the vessel, Liberating that, that shard so it can join other hidden shards back into a broken whole. And that this process is one of interacting with the materiality of the world. If it feels like we are all of a sudden, or at least for me, I all of a sudden see a through line through a lot of your writing. I, I think of a conversation you had with the artist Christina Forer for mm-hmm. the Wadsworth Athenaeum where you say, fairy tales show their seams, that you can see their spare threads and undergarments. And I also think of an essay you wrote since the finishing of Happily called The Perilous Realm after your house burned down, where you say, for the first few months after the fire, my husband and I would come back to our rental with arms full of broken things We picked off our burnt house, like a fruit off a dead tree. It was exhausting work. We were like farmers. But instead of fresh harvest, we grimly reaped what we still owned. Pens, two mezuzahs, a pair of scissors, a crumpled sheet of stamps, a laundry basket. One afternoon, my husband dragged in a battered glass door from my grandmother's antique bookcase, the one that kept my fairy tales. I can turn this into something, he said. What, I said. Something, he said. I began to wonder, what even are things? And who are we when all our things are broken? And who are we when all our things are gone? The door now leans against the screened-in porch of the rental house, like the glass eye of a dead woman, an eye that will never close. Or when I discovered your, I was curious what your doc- doctoral dissertation was on, and when I discovered it and uh, read the introduction, which is entitled How to Make a Poem Out of SimSum, Uh, and in that introduction you say, my maternal family escaped Vienna during the Holocaust, and my great aunt was allowed to bring with her one last object, She chose a porcelain doll. Her mother wrapped it in newspaper for transport. Years later, my great aunt unwrapped the newspaper to show me the doll. I must have been seven or eight. The day she unwrapped the doll was the same day it had been wrapped, according to the date on the paper. I remember it was November. The doll was broken. The eye was coming out of its socket and I think one leg was loose. We decided to take a trip into Manhattan to bring the doll to the doll hospital to get her repaired. When we got to the hospital, though, the doll doctor was hollering at someone on the telephone, and his hollering frightened me, shook me into tears, and we left. The doll was never fixed. Over the years, the doll fragmented and fell further and further apart. I believe the genesis of my quest begins with this doll. And and your recent post-Happily essay about the tooth your husband finds in a donut, also, it all feels like not only does any object, however mundane and ordinary, contain a shard of light waiting to be seen and liberated, but I wonder if perhaps every single thing, if we stayed with it, has a story.
3: One exercise I often give my students, and it's my favorite exercise, and it's probably the exercise really of so much of my writing, is to pick one object, something small, something incredibly, as small as as you can go, and write into it until it starts echoing the universe. Then I will often... Give them Borges's Aleph, because yes, I think that if you look at something for long enough and listen to it, everything can start talking back. I mean, probably one of my favorite moments in all of literature, and I came to Borges's Aleph late, and probably one of my favorite moments in all of literature is is you know that Aleph behind the staircase that when you look into just that one letter, it holds the entire universe, but you have to go down the stairs and you have to be okay with being in the dark and you have to look for a long time. I do have this really strange thing now going on in my heart and my brain because to lose all of one's possessions all of one's objects in a fire feels like unimaginable in in many ways and and yet the unimaginable was was you know happened and when we went through my house when we went through my house and kind of gathered up what was left and what had survived and what had not survived the stories that seemed to spill out of each thing it was so loud and too much and strange and i kind of had to turn the volume on it all the way down so it's weird right now like as as myself (laughs) Um, to kind of still be kind of like sorting, sorting through the debris of that, that's something I'm, I'm writing through right now. And, um, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, to bring this into language more in the intro to your thesis, how to make a poem out of SimSum, you talk about how exile or galut in Jewish mysticism is not just the state of Jews but a condition of the universe that, as you've explained already today, a being cannot become, cannot come into existence unless its creator withdraws. And and you wanted to find a way to enact this, this departure and this exile in your poetry. And you say some things that I love that I want to hear more about. For instance, quote, What SimSum does Ontologically, metaphor does linguistically. Both depend on galut, on exile. Metaphor makes language lack a certain presence where language happens to be. And then later, To adequately mimic a simsum, the poem cannot only use metaphor to house what departed from the shell, but it must also account for the wounded shell. And also, quote, if metaphor can initially be understood as sacrifice, the departure of one for the entrance of another, a sacrifice that ends in shatter, fragment, displacement, then the gather and harvest of the shatter, the stringing the shards together, is what makes allegory. And that last statement perhaps brings us back again closer to fairy tale. But could you talk a little bit more about how and why metaphor for you enacts exile, how it relates to houses, homes, and shells?
3: Yes. Angela Carter talks about reimagining the fairy tale as new wine and old bottles and metaphor itself is a way of finding these new containers maybe it's it's new bottles for old wine so in greece you know on on moving vans it's it says metaphora on it because you're literally like carrying the contents of one house um and storing them and, and bringing them to to another house or another shell um I remember when I first read Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons, I was so completely blown away because what Gertrude Stein does is she keeps the shell of the words and then seems to kind of create this this landscape almost of all of these broken shells in a kind of like form that looks like a glossary and you're, you know, crunching, over, you know, you're, you're, you're climbing over all of them and kind of experiencing language as, as something so incredibly physical, right? Like you can almost, when you read Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons, like you can feel the words themselves, the physicality of them, because the meaning, what had been inside of it has, has spilled out everything you just said just so beautifully is so much of what I'm thinking about right now, because here I was spending all of this time at my desk in my old office, you know, surrounded by all of these fairy tales and kind of using maybe like the shell of the fairy tale to write all these new stories or kind of take these these journeys but always always having the container or the shell of the fairy tale and then and then my house burns down and what was left though of my house was actually just the shell and three beams that we were able to keep that are kind of like at the center of the house. I mean it's seems kind of ridiculous, you know, that this, this has happened, but um, here I am, you know, where I think for so long in my writing, I had always felt like everything was a metaphor. And then even the metaphors were metaphors and those metaphors were metaphors too, you know, and you can just go on and on. And then this very, very physical, like one of the most physical things that could happen, right? Happened. And here I am inside of the shell. But, you know, the shell with three beams. If that's not the way I've always imagined the function of language, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that was, that's how I've always imagined how language functions. So, you know, I don't want to say it's surreal, but what's one step beyond surreal? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know.
0: I'm glad you brought up Gertrude Stein and also this question around the function of language, because I feel like another thing that runs through your work other than this question of SimSum sum and metaphor is something around the limits of language or the imprecision of language or a mystery about language that I want to hear more about. In Shara Leslie's review of your first book in Diagram, The Babies, she says, Throughout the babies, language falls, stumbles, and crosses wires. Lovers reply with utter certainty to both articulated and unarticulated questions. The poems, in fact, gain power by seeming miscommunication and misunderstanding. Although invested in the ability both to reveal and conceal meaning, Aura Marx's poems call into question the setting down of detail as an act of preservation, whether the subject is public or private. Weirdly Daring the Babies underscores the degree to which communication happens almost in spite of our best or worst intentions. And if we open your first book of fiction, Wild Milk, to the opening story, it again opens, that book opens with this very same thing, something that continues throughout the story and the book, mishearings, misinterpretations. And yet, weirdly, some sort of connection is made almost despite language. And continuing with this notion of Accounting for the Wounded Shell of Metaphor, you say of Gertrude Stein, Stein cracks open the shell that has kept the word impoverished of its other discourse. She makes language stop speaking the same language as its language, not as an act of annihilation, but as an act of restoration. Ceylon's poetry maintains that a poem's quote-unquote, speaking, remain contingent on an unspeakability. In Salon, every limb alludes to a limbless body. Every finger points to a fingerless hand. Again, this is not an annihilation, but a gathering up of a wounded language that is not lost, as he reminds us in his Bremen speech, but a language saturated in the shards of exile, that must go through its own lack of answers, through terrifying silence, through the thousand darknesses of murderous speech, went through and could resurface, enriched by it all. And in another interview you say, thinking of Stein's writing, that writing in a space of language that barely knows itself fascinates you. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this creating space for it seems like language is failure in in a certain way in the language
3: i think that because i began as a poet from you know i i began as a poet and the and and my understanding of language was uh, okay um here i am as a poet and my job is to articulate the silences, but you don't articulate the silences by by not recognizing that the silence that will always live at its center. I, I just carried that around with me as like a mode of thinking and a mode of writing. When I think about how to start telling a story, I think about what Walter Benjamin talks about with like the poet as a kind of collector where like you go around um and I you know and, and and the poet as a kind of rag picker where where you go around and you collect what has been forgotten or feels like it's it it no longer needs to be of use and you gather up those things and and a lot of those things have inside of them a kind of inability to speak or an inability to form an easily accessible narrative and you kind of gather those things up and and it almost, I mean, I know this is going to sound kind of like maybe like spells or like alchemy or something, but that's how that's how I approach language where it feels like a kind of digging, like it feels like a kind of searching and collecting. I mean, I remember like the first time I saw a Joseph Cornell box. I remember just like bursting into tears because here were these discarded things that had been reimagined as a kind of silent story.
0: Well, I want to ask you something about repetition. Yes. Not just because we're talking about Gertrude Stein, who has said things like, there is no such thing as repetition, and Mm -hmm. also that repetition is the lesson that history teaches us, and also that repeating is the whole of living, and by repeating comes understanding, and understanding is to some the most important part of living. But also because in your conversation with Christina Forer, you link your dual interest in the Torah and fairy tales to the way fairy tales are told and retold, and how repetition of the stories in the Torah is important as well. And I think it's worth noting that the Torah is circular, a scroll that is unscrolled and rescrolled over the course of a year, so that you're reading the stories each year in relation to the unfolding of the seasons. And regarding the Torah, this scroll aspect feels like At least to me, it gives it a certain sense of wholeness and unity. But also the fact that the Torah is only consonants, that it requires the vowels of our breath and song in engagement with it to bring it alive in each generation. And with each generation bringing it alive differently makes it seem incomplete without us in some way. Um, And yet the notion of an us is such a giant collective, which I think is true with fairy tales, too. Like when Angela Carter says in one of the epigraphs to Kate Bernheimer's essay, quote, Ours is a highly individualized culture with a great faith in the work of art as a unique one-off and the artist as an original, a godlike and inspired creator of unique one-offs, but fairy tales are not like that, nor are their makers. Who first invented meatballs? In what country? Is there a definitive recipe for potato soup? Think in term of the domestic arts. This is how I make potato soup. Does, does this bring up any thoughts about repetition for you and in relation to your work?
3: I think there's a line um, in Lucy Brock Brito's, the master letters where she writes obsession helps me up the stairs at night which is a line that goes through my head very often but the beautiful thing about the story is that it is like a kind of changing growing body i mean there is something always very in- alive inside of it so that and and we know this because Each time we go back to the same story, the story has changed somehow. And so you can feel it weathered or unweathering, or there's a piece that had been forgotten. And so for me, the repetition is maybe a way to make sure that all this, you know, we gather as many shards as we possibly can gather if like we keep returning to the, the edge of the river. I do see that act of repetition as connected to the idea of the writer, the poet as a collector and as a kind of res- rescuer, you know, like we need to kind of like return back to make sure we gathered everybody. And that's, you know, one of the things that's so incredibly beautiful about the fairy tale and how it stretches itself across time and space um, and feels the weather of like so many different cultures and is told and retold inside of so many different languages. Uh, It becomes like this, I don't know, some kind of, and maybe this goes back to the idea of like, garments or shield or overcoat or something that that stretches across like great expanses of time and space you know when we we all get somehow to to feel it to feel to feel that the the fabric of it and i think through repetition in the way that like you can you can hear a story that had been spoken by the dead it feels like a kind of, I don't know, a mode of, yeah, a a kind of tikkun olam, like a kind a mode of healing.
0: Well, in the aura of repetition or how nothing is perhaps truly repetition, we have one more question from another. And it's a question that revisits some things we've touched upon and questions that have been asked. But I, I suspect after all we've discussed that these questions will sound different. And also because of course, asked differently, and this question is an epic question, more like a series of nested questions like I tend to do. So what we have touched upon that we return to in this question also sits alongside things raised by this questioner that we haven't yet talked about, new things. And because this is from poet and host of Commonplace podcast, Rachel Zucker, who also writes deeply about motherhood and Jewishness, Even though she said I can edit this to whatever is most useful, I kind of wanted to leave this epic question in the aura and force field it creates, in its wholeness, so that it can influence what we talk about going forward. So here's Rachel with a question for you.
1: Beloved David, beloved Sabrina, I'm recording this on a bright, sunny, very cold Saturday morning in Scarborough, Maine. From my warm house, the world outside my big window looks warmly inviting, but the bitter wind blows even while the sun shines. People we love are sick, dying, suffering. I wish I was with you both right now, that I could make a cave of stuffed animals and pillows as I did as a kid, climb inside and listen to the two of you talk, or Listen to Sabrina read me her new book from beginning to end. I've learned that there are stories that can save your life and books that are more precious than yeast or flour, even in a pandemic, even when you're hungry. Happily is such a book. So what do I want you to talk about? What do I want to know? I want to know what happens when the crying room burns down. Is it like the first temple rebuilt, or like the second temple? Does it leave a real or figurative wailing wall that is a marker of diaspora? I want to hear you talk about the violence in fairy tales. It used to be that I would gift copies of my mom's book, The Magic Orange Tree, in audio or the book itself to everyone I knew who had children. But over the years, parents complained that the stories were too dark, too scary for their kids. It seemed that the Disneyfication of folk and fairy tales had somehow made children unable to tolerate the violence of these stories that have for thousands of years been told to children as a way of preparing them for the scary, complex feelings in themselves and in others that they will inevitably need to face Of course, the urge to protect children is normal. You had a book of fairy tales you were afraid to open because the cover alone was too frightening. But what is lost in not telling these stories to our children? What is lost by protecting them from made-up monsters and demons and dragons and evil stepmothers and then to tell them one day that indeed there are monsters? there are people who will try to hurt them, and the rivers and oceans and soil are filled with poison. It seems to me that we have an entire generation of young adults who were overprotected as children, and now, when confronted with the story of the world as it is, immobilized with terror. And lastly, on this Sabbath morning, I want to know from you, two Jews, about the stories of the flood, the angel of death killing the firstborn, Jacob struggling with the angel, the Red Sea parting ways, are stories of a vengeful God. How are these like and not like the folk and fairy tales? But mostly, I just want to hear you talk and talk and talk and keep making Midrash. I love you both.
3: That is so beautiful. Uh, thank you, Rachel. I love how Rachel's question actually felt like the gigantic garment that stretched over time and space and we, we could all kind of live under mm-hmm. um, or be wrapped wrapped up in so many beautiful questions inside of that question, which is really a prayer or a spell that question Rachel asked in the beginning, you know, what happens when the crying room burns down, sent chills through my whole body? So I taught out of my house and the classes were in-person classes and the room that I taught inside had been a renovated garage, which ended up being called the crying room because at one point in every workshop, there would always be crying. And if you didn't cry, at least once, you failed my class, but not really. <laughs> um, so there was inside of that, inside of my house, this incredible room where so many people came and told their stories and share their stories. And yes, you know, what happens when the space that held all of that energy burns down is a question I keep asking myself, and before the fire, my my sons and I were reading that book by Kate DiCamillo, Flora and Ulysses about a squirrel who becomes a poet. I highly recommend it. We had been reading that book, and we must have been reading the book together maybe the week before we had got before the fire, we had gotten halfway through and then our house burned down, and I for we forgot about it, or I forgot, we yeah, we forgot about it. And about a month ago, I said to my son Eli, Oh my God, remember we were reading Flora and Ulysses, and and we need to get another copy of that book. And the fire interrupted that book. And then I think I said, Isn't it strange like to think about how many things had been interrupted and what would have been different and what would have been the same. And Eli said, we could always get another copy of the book, but what's more important, he said, is that things are interrupted. And even if we start reading the book again, another thing will be interrupted and that thing will be interrupted too. And then the thing after that will be interrupted and that's sort of like everything it's just everything is always interrupted it gave me so much i don't know it just gave me so much joy to think about you know that kind of way time can work and how maybe the story that we think we're we're telling ourselves or being told will stop and start again or be picked up by another, be forgotten and then remembered. And so I don't really know what happens, you know, when the crying room is interrupted. Um, and I don't know what happens like when the, you know, when the day is interrupted by yet another shooting or another earthquake or another flood or, you know, a birthday party or some kind of singing but I think again it's like you keep gathering pieces of that pieces of those of those moments and and try to use those places as some kind of way as some kind of guide I just I love the question the question that that Rachel asked so much and and I'm kind of swimming in it right now
0: yeah Uh, when she mentions the um, the first temple, is it like the first temple, or is it like the second temple built on the destruction of the first temple, or is it like the the wailing wall, the whether literally or the or metaphysically yeah. the last standing wall? It made me think of you mentioned in one of the essays how the broken tablets from Mount Sinai. So the first time Moses goes up and then comes down and smashes the tablets before he goes up again for another uh, revelation, Um, that the broken tablets are put alongside the whole tablets in the Ark of the Covenant as they wander through the wilderness. It just makes me realize, you know, it it makes me realize this relation to brokenness predates the temples, which is really interesting. I'm not going anywhere with that. I'm going to say another perhaps non sequitur, but... The other thing that it made me think of listening to Rachel is I've always wondered, it's always felt weird to me that the word Jew seems, even though it should just be simply a descriptor, feels aggressive. Like if you say to somebody, he is a Jew, it sounds to me like it could be hostile versus he's Jewish. Mm. Um, And I don't know if that's true for other people, but it seems strange to me that it has this sort of strange valence. But when Rachel says, you two Jews, she says, Mm. I want to hear from you two, two Jews. That sounds like the warmest, most inviting thing to me. (laughs) Like somehow two Jews. Like, I love that. I don't know why, but like sonically or something that feels so um, like a home.
3: It does. I love that. I feel that and what about three Jews or four
0: Jews? <laughs> well, that's fine, but it's something warmer. about you two Jews, there is there's something very um warm about it to me.
3: I'm on a um a thread, a text thread. It's me and um and two two of, two of my friends and we're we're all Jewish and we will often get very specific questions my friend amy will always say you know here come here come the jews we're 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 you know we're coming to answer all of your questions with more questions um yeah yeah
0: well thinking both of your and rachel's long-standing deep explorations of motherhood and also rachel's saying she wished she could gather her stuffed animals and listen to you read happily beginning to end I did want to spend a moment with why fairy tales aren't taken seriously or as a serious source of study. Kate Bernheimer suggests that part of the reason they are only looked to for their meaning and not for their technique is because they are denigrated through their association with children and with women. And I also think back to Noah and his woodchip ghost people. How making these figures, making representations, seems so deeply innate and fundamental to who we are as humans from very early on, and yet something we're also pressured to disown and distance ourselves from as part of becoming an adult And perhaps it's even a legacy that we could extend all the way to you arriving at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and being told that surrealism is dead. This strange, contradictory relationship we have to this and to our own childhood intelligence, I I talk about this with Will Alexander, Karen Joy Fowler, and Neil Gaiman during their respective appearances on Crafting with Ursula, the series that I ran last year. And I wanted to read a quote from Le Guin and then hear your thoughts about fairy tales as a denigrated genre. So this is Le Guin having just finished talking about the anxiety of influence that some writers have. Quote, that the accepted male Notion of literary influence is appallingly simplistic, is shown, first, not last, but first, by the fact that it overlooks, ignores, disdains the effect of quote-unquote pre-literature. Oral stories, folk tales, fairy tales, picture books on the tender mind of the pre-writer. Such deep imprints are of course, harder to trace than the effect of reading a novel or a poem in one's teens or twenties. The person affected may not be conscious of such early influences, overlaid and obscured by everything learned since. A tale we heard at four years old may have a deep and abiding effect on our mind and spirit, but we aren't likely to be clearly aware of it as adults, unless asked to think about it seriously. And the person affected may be deeply unwilling to achieve consciousness of such influences. If quote-unquote seriousness is limited to discourse of canonical literature, we may well be embarrassed to mention something that some female relative read aloud to us after we'd got into bed in our jammies with our stuffed animals. Yet it may have formed our imagination more decisively than anything we ever read.
3: I love that. And I think the fairy tale and the the oral tradition of storytelling, you know, the stories that were told as children in the dark have a kind of fluidity are kind of bodiless in certain ways, um, or at least the borders of their bodies are, are a little bit more blurred than, let's say, the novel um, or or whatever, the most basic idea of the novel. And because of that blurring, it does make the story itself or, or the mode of storytelling or the way that it enters into our body that much more... Powerful and and then also that much more dangerous, right? Because you can't contain it. It's a kind of wind. Um, it's a it's a kind of air that we breathe that we share. And and once it can't be contained um, or stored into you know a single body, it, it can't be controlled or it can't be commodified, right? It can't be kind of bought and sold and so it's for that reason i think the fairy tale is just powerful and and fear and dangerous and feared you know and and probably my favorite one of my favorite fairy tales but don't tell the other fairy tales is (laughs) is um, pilates pinocchio you know because geppetto he carves what begins as a story out of wood, you know, and then the story itself, the, the boy Pinocchio, who is, who, who wants to be a real boy runs away from him and, and, and steals from him and, and lies to him and, and is kind of uncontainable in the way that the, the fairy tale is. And Geppetto risks everything to, try to find him and ultimately it's Pinocchio it's Geppetto's act of his own imagination that betrayed him the very thing that betrayed him it's Pinocchio who ends up saving Geppetto at the end and swims him out of the belly of of the shark on his back but I often think of Geppetto as like the mother of all mothers, you know, inside of, inside of the fairy tale. I mean, he'll do, he'll do anything to save Pinocchio, but it's Pinocchio who who saves him.
0: Hmm. Well, I wanted to think for a minute about Rachel's new book, The Poetics of Wrongness, in relationship to your project and her, her engagement with the Jewish taboo of Lashon Hara or evil speech, or bad-mouthing someone. A taboo except when it is meant to save a life. And Rachel's attraction toward transgression, toward saying anything, but also tempering that with how that anything affects not necessarily the given individual in question, but the community at large. I wanted to ask you about the question of ethics around what you say or who you portray. You've said in past interviews that *Simsum* had no eye in it and in many ways is more fictional than your subsequent book of fiction where your fictional stories have the eye peeking through. But this new book is very much about you and your family. Your children are repeatedly characters in it. Your husband is. And, and one thing that really adds a fairy tale to this book about fairy tales is that you are your husband's third wife. And you are thus a stepmother and have stepdaughters. And a stepdaughter is variably staying with you at different times. And you express your feelings in various ways to us about having a partner with these alternate pasts and about your complicated feelings about being a stepmom. And I wondered what your relationship to taboo is with regards to writing into these more autobiographical things. And or portraying your loved ones intimately and happily.
3: It's a very tricky question, and it's it's something that I talk to my students about. Also, um, you know, in terms of what are we allowed to say, and what are we not allowed to say, and what happens when we say the the thing that should never be spoken. I think, again, it helped me say the thing that I had felt that I should forbid myself from saying by keeping the fairy tale close as I was saying it as a way to not hide, but to say this thing that I have felt has been felt before is being felt now and will be felt again. And there's no shame in saying that. The other part of this is that as my sons are getting older right now, it's becoming more and more clear to me, for me, you know, just for me, I think for each writer, for each artist, it's so specific, but because... As my kids are getting older, I'm very aware of the things that they say to me that do not belong to me, that are not part of a story that I should be telling, that is part of the story that they should somehow be telling in one day, however they wish or now to tell it. I can actually point to the places where I can say, that's my story that's not my story that's my story that is my story that's not my story yeah. um and you often what happens is if i try to write about something that is not my story to tell that does not belong to me it, the writing's terrible it doesn't work it it feels fake or overwrought or the language refuses to give in so Answering that question about you know lashon hara and like what's okay you know and 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 sort of the idea of like airing the dirty laundry of of clothes that don't belong to me, I answer those questions in in the act of writing, um, like recently. I've been trying to write a story that my brother had has told me. And I had asked his permission even. Like I said, is it okay if I write about this? And he had said, yes, but it's it is a kind of secondhand story in a lot of ways. And I each time I go to the story, like the language refuses to give in. It won't bend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been trying to write this story for 15 years. So, you know, I, I do think that inside of the act of writing, I find the answers to what is okay and not okay. And there are times, you know, where there were some very dangerous places in happily, like, I will admit that and I'm not going to say I didn't get in trouble, because I did get in trouble. Um, But it was trouble, I was willing to get myself into and i was willing to deal with the fallout and the consequences of that because the bigger consequence would have been me like growing you know teeth where my cheeks are and claws um um and i knew i was willing to say my piece yeah um yeah
0: well, this is not really a question, but an aside. But I, I, I just have to say that your mother as a character is my absolute favorite character in this book. And she reoccurs throughout. And there are always these m- most incredible and incredibly funny moments because it's as if she's living in and operating in a different cosmos under a different set of metaphysical rules than the essay itself. And she punctures the spell of the essay, comes in almost from something from Curb Your Enthusiasm, for instance, with this blast of no-nonsense, worldly opinion, and it feels like it changes the way the electrons are spinning in, in the room of the essay. It's so great.
3: Thank you. She's my, she's my, um, forever, she's my poetic foil.
0: <laughs> she is. But yeah. it's so wonderful, this countervailing energy that comes into these essays, I, I like anticipate it when I'm reading them now because it's, she does something to them in this, really, or her, your portrayal of her as a character does something to your essays. Um, but staying with the poetics of wrongness in the broadest sense of the term, when Rachel says, I am wrong and you are wrong, and I'm willing to say it, therefore I am a poet, there were, <laughs> there were two things I wondered if I would encounter when I read Happily two things which in the end I didn't encounter, but I'm still curious to hear your thoughts on. Most of the book is about raising your two black Jewish boys in this world, the challenges of being a mother, a partner, a daughter, an artist in this world. And most of the forces you have to protect your family from are from the outside, whether racism or anti-Semitism, disease, mortality, any number of things. But I had two questions for you about when the wrongness is coming from within. And the first is about anti-blackness within the Jewish community, which at least in my experience isn't a small thing. Even simply the number of accounts of Jews of color entering a synagogue or other Jewish spaces and immediately being presumed to not be Jewish, even though between I think it's between 10 and 15% of Jews in the U.S. aren't white. And I wondered if this is something you simply haven't experienced, something you have but you haven't found a way into it or something that's too fraught to write into.
3: You know, it's something I really have very little language for because right now... In Athens, we're part of a congregation that is probably one of the most inclusive, embracing communities that I've ever been part of. I could pretend to know the reasons why that might be. I think everything I would say would be like a little bit wrong and a little bit right about Why about why that is? I feel like our family is incredibly embraced in that congregation. Now, I have gone to other congregations where I felt like my kids were stared at. And in fact, I had one pretty unpleasant interaction with a father, it was just very unpleasant. And clearly, I I don't have a lot of language for how to even begin talking about that. What I will say is that my son, Noah, had wanted to be in this holiday parade in Athens, and a lot of this different schools will put together floats for this holiday parade and Noah was very excited about doing this whole holiday parade and it's always you know very very Christmas centered and he decided that he was going to represent Hanukkah on the parade and he was going to dress up as a robot menorah and he designed (laughs) this like gigantic costume and it was beautiful and it was you know he he designed it and he got the materials and he put this whole costume together and had a gigantic gigantic Jewish star on his forehead and I'm not a big fan of like children on floats and parades on the best of days. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, all right, it's okay. You know, he's I'm really proud of him and he's representing. And also the float to make matters either better or worse was the theme was like holiday apocalypse or something, something wow. like this. So and so he he was he was incredibly incredibly excited, and we were getting ready to go to the parade, and I start seeing these messages coming in on Facebook that um, somebody had threatened to open fire on the parade, that there was going to be some shooting at the parade. Somebody had written something on Facebook and then on Instagram or something like this. And so there was this, we were about to go, there was about an hour and a half to like make this decision whether or not he was going to be on this float as a robot menorah, as a black kid representing Hanukkah in the ent- in the town, you know, and there was this threat and finally, my husband just made the executive decision and he's like, I'm going to pick him up. And he went to get him and Noah was so excited because he thought that his father was going to like walk with him at this parade. And he just was like, this isn't safe. Like we're going home. And, you know, it was heartbreaking. It was just absolutely heartbreaking from beginning to end. I mean, I tell this story because I think that, My kids now are being asked to, again, you know, for better or for worse, to 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 represent in a particular way or not in a particular way or as a robot menorah or as a black boy with a gigantic Jewish star on his forehead. You know, and ultimately it was like, here is his father coming, like reaching his hand out and being like, we have to go home. And again, you know, that's not the answer in terms of how specifically, like, the Jewish community embraces Blackness or doesn't embrace Blackness. Like, I think that feels, as always, an ongoing conversation that needs to be had. But there's also, I think, ultimately, as for our family, we have to go kind of like moment by moment and say like, this is safe, this is not safe. This is a place that we are, um we feel we can thrive inside. And this is a place we feel we can't, you know, everybody off of the float.
0: Well, the other question about wrongness from within has to do with fairy tales themselves. So the fairy tale seems like a way of meaning-making sometimes, and sometimes not meaning-making but life-saving, a way to make the things that don't make sense nevertheless feel connected to other things in a way that makes things cohere. Like when you say in, in Happily, the reason why fairy tales exist and thrive is because our bodies recognize them like they are our own, our same blood type because we recognize wolf, witch, forest, kiss, curse, spell, mother. The stories latch. But I wondered about the anti-Semitism from within fairy tales. For instance, I wondered when you brought up Rumpelstiltskin, I wondered if you would engage with the debate whether this is a coded anti-Jewish story. It isn't always easy to tell, I think, like with the history of vampire stories, goblin stories, for instance, do have lineages in Europe that have nothing to do with Jews and others that very much do. But there are very explicit anti-Jewish fairy tales in the Grimm Tales. The Jew among thorns, the girl who was killed by Jews, the Jew's stone, which perpetuates the myth of the blood libel. And then there are modern Jewish responses, retellings, and reclamation like what Naomi Novik did with Rumpelstiltskin in her novel Spinning Silver. But thinking about you and our three guests, Kate, Alicia, and Rachel, all four of you Jewish women, how do you engage, if at all, with the encounter of, wrong, of, wrongness, of wrongness within the fairy tale itself?
3: I think this goes back to to repetition, actually. I think this goes back to on one hand, you know, the telling and the retelling of a story can drive it deeper into a particular soil, like kind of give the seed a kind of more time to grow into something more poisonous. But in the telling and the retelling, of a story and the repetition, it can also reimagine it and reclaim it. And right, I mean, I think we go back into that question of like, the future has an ancient heart. Well, do we want it to have an ancient heart? You know, like, we don't want the same stories to keep happening, right? Like, we don't want the same stereotypes and the same modes of hate to just keep being sewed inside of story. And I think that's why the idea of the new wine in the old bottles is so powerful to me, because it kind of goes back, you know, to the to, to carrying like the whole tablets and the broken tablets through the desert, where you say, this was the story that was sullied and mean and grew a poisonous seed, you know, and here is the new story that we are, we are going to be telling. Um, And you, you carry those things side by side. It reminds me also of like how Claude Lonsman imagines building Yad Vashem, the Holocaust museum in, in Israel, where, when he thought about the architecture, he imagined it as um, a line that cuts across the horizon. You know that you see a place where history was ruptured, um, and then the museum itself, I think, was designed in a particular way where it has at times a feeling of like not being able to find your way out, and I think retelling the story means not that you forget the first telling of it that you have to kind of remember the first telling of it in order to retell it properly um and in order for there to be some kind of new way of 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 thinking that happens
0: it does feel connected also to of course we encounter things all the time in the torah that that we don't like, for instance, in the midrash that happens around how to make meaning out of those things, too.
3: May there always be like a thousand rabbis with a thousand conflicting ideas, just, you know, (sighs) arguing in the margins.
0: Well, I'd love to go out with another excerpt, but before we do, I was curious about your writing life post-Happily. Do you have a sense of what your next project will be?
3: It had been one thing. Um, and then it had been interrupted <laughs> with the fire. Um, I'm, I'm writing about fire right now, but I'm writing about rebuilding. I think in the way that inside of my essays and happily stories would start appearing. I think now I'm writing stories where inside of them, little essays are starting to appear, but I'm not sure yet, but it's it's right now a little bit of a, of a mess.
0: Well, let's go out with the beginning of your essay, Time to Pay the Piper. Sure.
3: Time to pay the piper. It's time to pay the piper. We gather around the old wooden table. No one wants to pay. But it's time. It's 1,000 o'clock. Everyone is here. The living and the dead. My grandparents, my mother, my father, my sons, my husband, the rabbis, even the president. You are here too. Your teachers, your neighbors, your long-lost friends. Everyone you know is here. We put what we can on the table. Everyone must add to the pot. My sons leave wildflower seeds. My husband leaves a rose-colored pendulum. The president mutters and leaves ash. The rabbis leave ink marks scattered like sewing needles. My father leaves his stethoscope. I leave this chapter. I leave my favorite broom. My grandfather leaves a small black key. My grandmother leaves her radiance. My sister leaves her hair. I'm not paying, says my mother. I've paid enough. The earliest known version of the Pied Piper of Hamelin is not a fairy tale, but a stained glass window pane from a church in Hamelin, Germany, that was destroyed in 1633. Only a shard remains, which Noah pulls from his pocket and holds up to the light. It's the piece of glass with the piper's magical flute. The flute is bronze and the light catches what's left of the piper's hands. Noah adds the shard to what we'll use to pay the piper. We miss the old sky. We think if we pay the piper now, the wildfires and the wind and the virus and the floods will swirl back into their wellspring, but the piper is missing. We drag our payment in a large dark sack through the streets calling the piper's name, our heavy debt. Our hands are blistered and hot, but we must pay the piper. We look for his red and yellow striped scarf and the pipe that hangs from it. We should have paid him long ago when he emptied our town of rats who bit the babies in the cradles and made nests inside men's Sunday hats and even spoiled the women's chats by drowning their speaking with shrieking and squeaking, as Robert Browning wrote. We should have paid him before the sea levels rose and the polar bears thinned. We should have paid him before the first man was shot for the color of his skin, before the first wire was barbed. But we didn't pay the piper, so the piper made a new song for the children that promised a joyous land where waters gushed and fruit trees grew. We didn't pay the piper, and so the children merrily followed him into a mountain and a disappearing door shut fast when the last child's was inside. Now, there are no more children. Now, there are no more children, except for one hobbling boy left behind who couldn't dance into the mountain fast enough. There is always one hobbling boy left behind to describe the song the children followed. He is the poet. And there is always one rat left behind to describe the song the rats followed. The rat is the poet, too. On Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar 101 times. The blasts alternate between broken howls and long moans. According to the Talmud, the shofar should be a ram's horn because it is hollow and recalls Abraham's near sacrifice of his only son. It recalls Abraham's blind devotion, which blurred only when an angel showed him a ram whose horns were caught in a nearby thicket. Abraham was ready to overpay the piper, but paid with a terrified ram instead. The shofar we have is broken. My sons take turns blowing it, but all we can hear is silence. It is a beautiful silence. One day, when there are too many of me, that is the song I will follow into a mountain. We add the broken shofar to the missing piper's payment. Do you ever feel like you're dreaming while you're awake, asks Eli. Sometimes I say, do you? Of course, says Eli, we are always dreaming. I am a dream and you are a dream and Papa is a dream and Noah is a dream. Our house is a dream and the earth is a dream.
0: Well, it's been a dream to talk to you today, Sabrina.
3: It's been so wonderful david thank you i hope i i hope i made sense
0: <laughs> <laughs> you definitely um
3: did. but it's just it's it's just an absolute honor um uh, to be near your brilliant mind so thank you mm-hmm.
0: we've been talking today to sabrina or mark the author of happily and you've been listening to between the covers i'm david Naaman, your host Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio archive, Sabrina contributes the reading of the Bruno Schultz short story Birds, which joins bonus material from Jai Chakrabarty, reading poems by Bruno Schultz's biographer, the Polish poet Jerzy Fakowski. Jen Bourbon reading letters by Paul Salon and a poem of hers written under his influence. Alice Oswald reading from the Book of Job. Jenny Ophel reading Mary Rufel, and much more. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community, including collectibles from everyone from Ursula K. Le Guin to Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore to Mary Kim Arnold the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com/support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team: Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the Book Division, Beth Steidel in the Art Department, Becky Kramer, Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash barbara browning.